Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. I was talking this morning about basically we have a choice. You know, we can live with anxiety in our lives or we can live with joy through thanksgiving. Uh, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. How much is that? How much is zero? (laughs) How much is nothing? You know, don't don't you love all the nothings in the Bible? Don't you love that? All the things that are nothing in the Bible. I, I, I once was uh, at Bible college, um, and I said, I'm going to talk to you about the Gospel of John, and I'm going to speak about how nothing is important in the Gospel of John. And all the, all the students were kind of looking at me. What do you mean nothing is important in the Gospel of John? Because it begins like this in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things without were made by Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. You see, nothing is important in the Gospel of John. Because there's nothing that's been made in our world, in our universe, in your reality, nothing without Him being involved. Don't you love it? Jesus said, the prince of this world is coming and He's got nothing in me. Because nothing is important in the Gospel of John. He performs a miracle and feeds 5,000 people. And he said, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Because nothing is important in the Gospel of John. See, God is the God who's interested in every single detail. And when Jesus finally meets Peter in John chapter 21, they fish all night and they catch But then Jesus shows up and they get a mighty catch. And do you see that sometimes in your life, nothing is important? (laughs) Sometimes in your life, what you think is important isn't important. Nothing's important. (laughs) And you're meant to be anxious for nothing. There is no arena of your life that is excluded from God's desire to intervene and to care and to show his love. And then, then it goes on to say this. So, so nothing is important. Then it says, and every, and then it says everything. <clears throat> Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. <laughs> Don't you love that? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Who would ever put those two words together? Nothing and everything. In everything, by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the thing that I, I just want to emphasize tonight that I was talking about this morning. God has designed you and I to live carefree. He he wired you that way. We live in a fallen world where anxiety hits us every day. Listen, it's not so much that anxiety doesn't come to your doorstep, but don't let anxiety park there or build a tent there or build a house there. Do you know what I'm saying? Anxiety knocks on the door of my life every day. Because I'm caring for a church that's in London and I'm not there. So every day there's issues and problems. It's, it's one of the reasons why I get up early, stay up late, so that I can connect with the other side of the world. That's a 12-hour difference. 
And so I'm having to face issues every single day where I can choose to either be anxious about them or I can choose to pray and let God take care of it. Now, here's the thing that I've discovered. When I pray about things I'm anxious about, sometimes it's simply about praying and giving it over to God. That's it. It's a transaction. Um, Some people say to me, how have you survived so long in ministry, 40 years in ministry? And I'm still smiling. People say, how do you do that? And I say, well, I've just got a little routine every night before I go to bed. Here's the routine. I do the best that I can for God, and then I have this simple prayer. Well, Lord... I've done everything I could do today. There's stuff left undone, and there's a bit of a mess in this situation, but you know about it anyway. I'm tired. I'm going to bed. Good night. It's your problem. I've practiced that for years. And, and some people kind of laugh at me and say, you can't do that. And you, What do you mean you can't do it? I do it. Well, that's a bit irresponsible, isn't it? No, it's the most responsible thing I could do. Because if I lived in anxiety, I would get depression, I would be on tablets, and I wouldn't be any good to anybody. So I know that when I say, that's as much as I can do, and I go to bed, and I leave it, I'm ready to face it the next day. Whatever it is, whatever it is. And so sometimes when you pray, you can give it to God and it's dealt with. But other times when you pray, God will speak back to you. And you say, Lord, I, I, want it, I want this issue dealt with my life. And God says, okay, if you want that issue dealt with, deal with this issue. Have you had that conversation with the Lord yet? <laughs> oh, some of you know what I'm talking about. Others of you don't want to know. But sometimes through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. And here's the thing about thanksgiving. It says this in Psalm 100. I, I love this text in Psalm 100. It says, enter his gates with? Very good. And his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. The way to come into God's presence is with gratitude. Have you ever had a kid who walked into a room And uh, you're doing something good for them. You've done something nice for them, but they don't walk in with with an attitude of gratitude. It's like, how annoying is that? As a parent, how annoying is that? God says, when you come into my presence, I want you to think about what you can be grateful for before you walk through the door. And you know, part of maturing in life is that when you leave home, you suddenly realize your parents were not as bad as you thought they were. Has anyone discovered that yet? Mark Twain wrote these words one time. He said, when I was 17, I thought my father was the most ignorant, brutish man in the world. He said, by the time I was 21, I was astonished at how much he'd learned in only five years. (laughs) Because as you get older, you appreciate and you come with a different perspective. And God says, when you come into my presence, I want you to come with thanksgiving. Now, here's the thing about thanksgiving. It always leads to praise. And it is courts with praise. Because when you have a heart of appreciation, it releases the joy and the sound of praise in God's people. You see, whenever they praised in the Bible, they didn't just say praise God. They said praise him for his greatness. Praise him because his mercy endures forever. Praise him for who he is. Praise him for his wonderful works. So there was always something on the end of praise him. There was always in their heart a sense, this is who God is or this is what God has done and I will acknowledge his greatness. 
So when we come into his presence, he says, come with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. You see, one of the best ways that you can bless God is through your thanksgiving. David said in Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. At all times. He wrote that in a cave. He'd just gone down to visit King Abimelech. He was running away from Saul. He kind of lost his bearings a bit. There was a period in David's life where he lost his bearings. He went down into the camp of the enemy. Can you believe that? He ran away from King Saul and he went to Philistine territories like, duh. That's not a bright thing to do, is it? And, and he thinks, I'll be safe down here. And all the men are talking about David. And say, isn't that the guy who slew Goliath? And they wrote a song about him. And, they, and it says, when David heard these words, he took it to heart. And then they said this, isn't he the king of Israel? That's really interesting because Saul was the king of Israel. But the enemy knew the kingship that was on David's life before Israel did. Let me just tell you something. The first people to recognize Jesus was the Messiah were the demons. The enemy knows the destiny on your life way before the church does or, or you do. And that's why he tries to destroy people. And because he understands the destiny and call that's on our lives, he tries to bring things into your life that will utterly destroy you. I have found people who suffer from anxiety usually have a calling of great faith on their life. So the enemy says, oh, well, we'll kill that before that even starts. So he tries, to put, he tries to put anxiety into their world to destroy them because the calling is actually to be a man or woman of faith. How many of you have ever heard of George Muller? few of you. Okay, let me tell you very quickly. George Muller, uh, he was actually Prussian. Today that's been absorbed into Germany and Poland and countries like that, but he was Prussian. In, his, in the early part of his life, he was a thief. He would literally go from hotel to hotel. He would stay in top posh hotels, usually for a week, not pay the bill, leave, and then go to another hotel. He went around most of Europe like that till he was finally arrested and thrown into prison. He spent about six months in prison, and he wrote to his father, and he says, can you pay for me to come out of prison? It's not very nice here. His father said, well, I'm not sure. I think you're learning a valuable life lesson. He said, well, I, my health is deteriorating. I, please get me out of here. So his father went and paid a substantial amount of money, got him out of prison. And after a while, after getting out of prison, he was in his 20s, he had a faith encounter and he decided, I want to be a missionary for God. So he came to the UK, learned English, came to the United Kingdom. He was in London for a period of time. He was working amongst the Jewish quarter in Bethnal Green in London. And then he got a call to, be, to do a pastorate down in the south uh, 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 west of England. And he went down towards Cornwall, towards that way in this part of England. And he was working in a local church there. And as he was working in the local church, they didn't like him very much. And they started to criticize him, criticize his messages. He was baptizing people and they didn't have a history of baptizing in that church. So they said, well, we don't want you to be our pastor anymore. And he said, well, that's a problem because the Lord does. And they said to him, well, we're not going to pay you. And that's, he said, that's okay. God will take care of me. That was his first step of faith. So they stopped paying him, and the Lord started to take care of him. Then at that time in Bristol, there was a terrible disease that went by, and loads of people, I think it was typhoid, loads of families were hit by this, and loads of parents died. And suddenly there were a whole group of children who were orphans, and he took them in. He took them in. 
And over the years, he just kept taking all the orphans in, and he just believed God for bigger houses, bigger houses, bigger houses. And everything was a by faith. God took him on a journey. He became one of the greatest men of faith who ever lived. Do you know, in the morning, uh, he, he sat down with like 120 children and 30 staff, and they were all there ready for breakfast. And the chef came in and said, we've got no food. We've got nothing. He said, let's say grace. The Lord will provide. So he stood there and he thanked the Lord for breakfast. There was no food on the table. There was, the cupboards were empty. He said, Lord, thank you for the breakfast that you're about to provide for all of these wonderful children that you love. He said a very simple grace. At the end of grace, he said, amen. There was a knock at the door. It was the local baker. He said, I baked too many loaves of bread today. Would you like some? So they got all the bread in and fed the entire group of kids and staff for that day they had a wonderful fresh bread break breakfast and he had miracle after miracle after miracle by the end of his life by the end of his life he was personally supporting on his own 120 missionaries as well as financing his orphanages he was personally supporting 120 missionaries when he retired at 70 he decided to go on the road and have an itinerant ministry he ministered itinerantly for the next 17 years till he was 87 he went to china he went to america he met with two presidents who were so impressed by his story they wanted to meet him he sat down with two presidents but his life began as one of unbelief and anxiety and I believe that the enemy wants to destroy destiny in us. And the promise here is that if you give it over to God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Now, the word guard there is an interesting word in the Greek. It's a military word, and it literally this means this, that peace acts like a Roman centurion guard. In other words... As soon as anxiety comes to the, to the door, the peace of God is there like a Roman centurion saying, what are you doing here? You're not allowed to pass. I'm not letting you through the door. The peace of God is not just some esoteric feeling, some Zen moment. The peace of God is like a soldier guarding your heart, keeping anxiety away. That's the promise of God. But you, we have to be those people who, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, you, you've got to get into the habit of saying thank you. How many times have you ever had a child take something and they didn't say thank you? And you look at them and you say, what do you say? What do you say? When I was teaching my kids to say thank you, we used to hold on to it. They couldn't, they couldn't get it out of our hand until they said thank you. And I used to say, what's the magic word? What's the magic word? You know you're not going to get it till you say it. All right, thank you. There you go. Well done. That wasn't so hard, was it? And for kids, sometimes it's really hard because you're training them. You're developing their spirit. You're developing their character. In exactly the same way, God is looking for you and I to do the same. In, it says in... in, um, in uh, uh, Luke chapter 17, it's the story of the 10 lepers that Jesus healed. And these 10 lepers, they're crying out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. And he goes, well, what do you want? Oh, that we would be healed, cured of leprosy. Leprosy is a terrible disease if you're living in a third world country. It's a terrible disease. It, it, just, it just eats away, literally, and ruins your life. You're a social outcast. 
I've been to places like Ethiopia where they have a disease called podoconiosis. And it's a disease that affects the legs and the feet where they swell up like elephant legs. And when people have these diseases, you have to understand in a lot of these cultures, they think, well, that's a demon. So they're cut off from society. They're not allowed to get jobs. They're not allowed to get married. They often will die because they starve to death because nobody takes care of them. And and in, in those kinds of cultures, you are really the lowest of the low. And these people come to Jesus and they say, have mercy on us. And Jesus says, well, go show yourself to the priest. You'll be healed. And as they're walking along the way, they suddenly discover, hang on a sec, my skin, has, it, it's wonderful. I, I'm healed. And they're all rejoicing and they're all so excited. Their lives have literally been changed and transformed. And one guy runs back to Jesus, falls at his feet. And it says, he glorified God and said, and gave him thanks. And Jesus turned around and he said, weren't there 10? Weren't there 10? Where are the others? How is it only one has returned to glorify God, to give thanks, and he's a Samaritan? All the rest, all the people of God, the Jews, those in covenant relationship with God, they didn't return to give thanks. It's a powerful story, isn't it? You see, listen, they all got healed but only one showed appreciation. Listen, we're all saved if we love Jesus, but how many of us show him appreciation? How many of us just get up first thing in the morning and say, Lord, thank you that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you you remember that story? That's in Luke chapter 10. The 70 returned. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I think they added that on the end. I think Jesus looked at them, yeah, in your name. You know, it's very powerful when you cast out your first demon. I think I was 31 when I cast out a demon from someone for the first time. It scared me to death. It took me about 20 minutes. It was so funny because I was so naive with things of the Spirit in those times. I was with a friend of mine, and we, we, we just did the John Wimber prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. You know, that was back in those days. So we just went like that, laid hands on him, and said, come, Holy Spirit. And he fell down. His eyes rolled into the back of his head, so white eyes were looking at me, and he started hissing. And I turned to my friend, and I said, do you think that could be a demon? I was moving in very powerful discernment. (laughs) And he looked at me and he said, well, it doesn't look good. (laughs) So completely naive, you know, I just thought, okay, we'll we'll command it to come out in Jesus' name. So we were sort of commanding this thing to come out of this guy and it was getting worse. He He was just hissing more and writhing about on the floor and it just looked really freaky. I mean, really freaky. And bearing in mind, I've had no training in this. They didn't teach me that at Bible college. They taught me, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. (laughs) I can say all the books of the Bible in 20 seconds. But I I didn't know how to deal with a demon. And uh, so there we were. We were praying over this guy, and it was getting worse. And then he goes, oh, I think I've got a word of knowledge. You know, and I wanted to ask him what that was. But anyway, he goes, I go, okay, good, use it. And then he goes, and then he, put, he named this thing. He said, you python spirit, I command you to come out in Jesus' name. And this guy coughed and coughed and coughed. And then he was okay. And then he got up and he said, thanks very much. And he walked out. That was my introduction 
to deliverance. And I sat there and I thought, what the heck just happened? I've taught for 10 years Christians can't have demons. I need to go rethink this stuff because I knew he was a Christian. I knew he was in our church. He was baptized. He loved Jesus. And he got a demon. I thought, what the heck is going on here? Kind of threw me a little bit. And, and, and my point is simply this. The, the, the enemy binds people and puts strongholds on people. And maybe they don't have demons, but they're, they're not living in the freedom that God has for them. And I, and I had to learn, if you're going to live in freedom, then you've got to use your authority that's in Christ Jesus. You've got to do what God said to Joshua. You've got to put one step in front of another and say, that's my possession, that's my inheritance. I'm not going anywhere. You're going somewhere, enemy. I'm going to take my inheritance. I want joy. I want freedom. And I'm not giving up till I get it. Do you get this? Now, that guy got freedom in his life. And, 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 and the thing that we have to ask ourselves is, look, is look what, what level of peace, what level of freedom have I got in my life? For years I talked to you about how fear dominated me. But I, 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 I learned to accept it until I realized from God's word there's a higher way, there's a better way, there's freedom is part of my inheritance, but I need to claim it. Do you get it? So we, we've got to teach people, come on, through thanksgiving, Something happens on the inside. Now, now, neuroscience is really interesting. Some of the stuff they discovered in the last 10 years, it's really fascinating. If you get a chance to read Caroline Leaf's book, uh, some of the stuff that she's written, it's just really fascinating. But here's the thing. What you allow your mind to focus on will determine what, what literally the pathways that you create in your brain that become like highways that you drive down. Highways of thinking, default settings, default patterns of thinking. And what we've got to do is we've got to say, well, instead of resigning yourself to it and say, well, that's the way my mother was like that, my grandmother was like that, it's just the way I am, somebody has to put a stake in the ground and say, I'm going to be different. Now, my, my mother was filled with anxiety all of her life. There came a point in my life where I said, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of being anxious. And I started to change things. And one of the ways I started to change things in my life was thanksgiving. Appreciation. Appreciation. You see, we, we live in a world where people are dominated by covetousness. Covetousness is the need to want more and have more. But Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. He says, I have learned in whatever state I'm in, in Philippians 4.11, to be content. I know how to be a base. That's not have much. I know how to abound. In other words, I know how to enjoy a lot. Everywhere in all things, I've learned to be both full and to be hungry. Notice how twice he says, I've learned. How do you learn contentment? Let me give you three ways you can learn contentment. Here's the first, through God's word. You can learn contentment through God's word. In other words, the truth of God's word can actually frame your world in such a way that you can learn contentment. Now, most people don't like learning that way. So there's another way. There's a, there's a number two. The testimony of others, the story of others, that's very powerful. When you hear someone else's story, when I know when people hear my story that I had the light on for almost 10 years of my life, you know, growing up, and, and I was so afraid of the dark. When they hear that story, it gives them hope. 
Kiss them what guy is going to stand here? What macho guy is going to stand here and admit that? But that's part of my journey. That's part of my story. You know, because most guys want to look tough. They want to look hard. You know, they want to be like Jason Statham. You know what I mean? One of those kick-ass guys. <laughs> but the truth is, every guy has got his own different set of insecurities that he's dealing with. Every guy has. I did a men's um, seminar in America one time where there were a group of ex-Hells Angels who'd got saved in this church. They were great guys. They had their Harley Davidsons outside. And I'm talking about, have you ever seen a a, a Hells Angels who's, who's in his 60s? I mean, they're big guys. They're tattooed up to the eyeballs. And these guys, we did this time, and I shared my story. I shared my story about being delivered from fear. I shared my story about my father and how God healed our relationship. I'm telling you, when we had a ministry time, there were these six hell's angels down the front bawling their eyes out. I mean, bawling their eyes out. I had to hug them. You know, it's like, yeah, Jesus loves you and all of that. Just hard guys. If you knew their history, you'd be scared. You know, these are criminals. They, They in and out of prison. Hard men. But God touched their hearts. They were just tender before him. Just tender before him. So, so the power of testimony, my story had an impact on them. It made them want to respond to God. But you know what? Sometimes people don't want the word of God. Sometimes they, want, they, they don't believe someone else's story. So then there's a third way God teaches you. It's called the pain of experience. <laughs> How many of you know that one yet? Yeah, there's a lot of people in this room. You don't like number one and number two. You got number three. The pain of experience. God will let you go through stuff. And you will learn it firsthand. And sometimes life is the best teacher. Experience is the best teacher because there's a little bit of stubbornness in us. Have you noticed that? A little bit of stubbornness. Sometimes people say to me, like it's like they're proud of it. Oh, I'm just a little bit stubborn. I said, oh, you're an, idol- you're an idolater then. And they say, what do you mean I'm an idolater? First Samuel's 15. Because rebellion is just a sin of witchcraft. So if you're a rebellious person, you're basically like a witch. Oh, that's a little harsh. That's the Bible, First Samuel 15. And if you're stubborn, stubbornness is like idolatry you know why because stubbornness is when you make a god of your opinion well it's good tonight isn't it you should be paying me on that good no i'm just kidding stubbornness is like idolatry paul says covetousness is like idolatry it's when we make a god of something And then what do you do? When you make a god of something, you have to sacrifice to it. So you sacrifice to your opinion about yourself. You sacrifice to your opinion about others. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to trust them because I know what they're like. Oh, do you? Thank you. We should have you on the throne instead, shouldn't we? Because you know what they're like. You know what you've experienced. You don't know what they're like. You don't know what people wrestle with on the inside. I've discovered as a pastor not to be judgmental about people. I've discovered that as a pastor over years. I was, I was really quite judgmental in the early days. And then you hear people's story and you hear what they've worked through and you hear where they've come from. You see, the problem is in life, we measure people by where we think they should be. God always measured them by where they've come from. You see, they, they may have come right from over here 
and they've been in a really, really dark place, and they've made all this progress, and they've got all the way to here, and you look at it and you say, well, well, you should be there. You should be there, because when you started off, you didn't start there, you started here. See, and you, when you made your progress, you went to here, but you know what? You haven't traveled as far as they did. So they're not as mature as you, they're not as far as you, but they've gone further than you, and God knows it. It's one of the reasons why I refuse to judge people. I just refuse to do it. I, until I know their story, until I know their journey, until I know what they've had to wrestle with, I will not compare them to my story and my journey. Because I started life pretty well. Do you get it? <laughs> Thanksgiving. You can live with covetousness or contentment. You choose. To live always wanting what someone else has. Oh, I wish I had a marriage like that. Oh, I wish I had a house like that. Oh, I wish I had a car like that. I wish I had an education like that. You know, whatever's an idol in your life, God will just keep, keep attacking it until you let it go. You know, in the book of Judges, Gideon couldn't accomplish anything for God till he cut down the idols. That's the first thing God told him to do. He said, don't deal with the enemy, deal with the idols. (laughs) If you want to fight the enemy, deal with the idols in your life. Deal with the idols. Education was a big idol in my family's life because I was the first son who went to university. In fact, I went to a secondary modern school that was so bad, the education in that school was so bad, I was the first student who went to university in the years that 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 school existed. Nobody did that. There were a few who went to teach a training college, but that wasn't university in those days. It is now. But back in the day, 40 years ago. So it became a big pride thing in our family. You know, there I was at university, and it was a bit of a pride thing for me, you know, being the first to do that. That was quite an accomplishment. And then in my third year of being at university, I met Jesus in a powerful way. And I felt like the Lord said to me, I want you to go to Bible college. And I said, I will, Lord. I'm going to qualify in nine months as a civil engineer. I'll finish my degree and I'll be going to university. And I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, no, I want you to go now. That degree is in the way of your life journey. Now, I'll tell you what, when I share that story, there's always parents in the room saying, please don't let my son and daughter follow that guy's example. (laughs) They're sort of secretly praying. Now, to every young person here at university, Unless the angel Gabriel comes down and tells you to leave university, please don't do what I did. Is that okay? Okay. I I just had such a clear word from God, such a clear knowing. I felt like I needed to be obedient to him. I am the exception to the rule. Is that okay? So parents, just let the anxiety go down now. (laughs) I don't want your kids to leave university. I want them to finish. We should finish everything. But as a result of me leaving university, my mother and father were so shocked, they didn't know how to handle it. They weren't believers. They had no frame of reference. No frame of reference whatsoever. My mother started to read every single book about Christianity she could get hold of. And I, I made sure my brother fed her good books. I was making sure she was reading Billy Graham and some good authors just about Jesus and about salvation, because she was Catholic. 
She thought salvation was what you did on Sunday when you put the host in your mouth and you took communion. You know, we're taking Jesus. This is my body. This is my blood. This is Jesus we're having every Sunday. Yeah, yeah mum, it's not quite like that, you know. <laughs> Trying to break through the Catholics is just not easy. And then my father, he was just angry. He was just angry. He didn't want to know about God. He didn't want to know about anything for years. He was just an angry man. But it pushed them to suddenly realize, I did something outside of their frame of reference. And I learned to trust in God rather than in education. And that's why it was so funny to me when I was nearly 40 years of age and God told me to go back to university. I said, Lord, you're joking. I said, I died to that 20 years ago. He said, yeah, I know you're dead to it. That's why I want you to go back. Now I want you to do a master's degree. And I went back and did a master's degree. And actually, I, I did really well. I got a distinction. I was one of three people in the university who got a distinction in my master's degree. I did really, really well. God really blessed me. But you know what? I'd already died to it. It wasn't an issue. It wasn't an issue. But for my father, it was a big issue. And finally, 20 years later, he said, I'm so glad you made the choices you did. I'm so glad you're doing what you do. Thank you. I get to see you graduate from something. And my father became a believer at 84 years of age. Stubborn old git. <laughs> at 84 years of age, he finally got there. We had the best four years after that of just really, really, really connecting with each other. But, but here's the thing, friend. What, what is an idol in your life? What, what, what's the thing you can't let go of? Oh, Lord, don't, you know, you can take everything, but don't touch that. Then what do you think God's going to say? And you can make an idol of a, you can make an idol of a relationship. I've seen that with loads of men and women in my life. I said, that, that guy's not good for you. That, guy, that guy's becoming more important to you than God is. Find your wholeness in God. Be secure in who you are, in your identity, in your calling in God. And then you'll be ready for a guy. But if, if you try and find your sense of identity in another person, they will always and ultimately disappoint you, and you'll just end up being angry. You've got to find who you are in God and find your identity and your security. And that's a journey for every single one of us. That's a journey for men. That's a journey for women. Some people want to find their identity and security in a job. Sometimes it's in money. Sometimes it's in possessions. Sometimes it's in fame and recognition. You can make an idol out of everything. But you know what? When you practice thanksgiving, it crucifies that stuff. Because when you practice thanksgiving, you're acknowledging God is in my life and everything I have is a result of his goodness. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you got it from God in the first place, it's okay when he takes it because it's secure in his hands. There was a man who went to South America to the Orca Indians. His name was Jim Elliot. His wife, Elizabeth Elliot, was his surviving widow. He was killed by the Orca Indians. He was there on his second trip. They, they murdered him. They found his journal where he'd been witnessing to these Indians. And he wrote this in his journal. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to keep that which cannot be taken away from him. 
His wife read his journal and was so inspired, she became the missionary to the Orca Indians and led the man who murdered her husband to Jesus Christ. He became the pastor of the church. You can't do that unless God becomes the center of your world. You can't live that kind of forgiveness. You can't take that kind of, you can't make that kind of sacrifice. I wonder where in your world you just need to step back a little bit and say, what am I grateful for? What am I grateful for? I've been to enough African countries to know every morning I wake up, I'm grateful for Christchurch water that tastes really good. I'm telling you, it tastes really good. Over in Westport, it's crap. Westport, it's not very good. They're complaining. It's a big issue. It's actually a political issue. They're very disappointed with the mayor because he said he was going to do something about it. The water comes out funny from the tap. You can't drink it. It's horrible. But in Christchurch, running water. You know, when our kids were teenagers, we sent every single one of them to Africa on little mission trips when they were teenagers. We did it for a specific reason. We said, we want you to learn appreciation. You'll never learn it until you're in a place where you don't have the things that you get every day. Boy, did they come back appreciative. Oh, Dad, I've just had the most amazing shower. I said, it's good, isn't it? Isn't it good when you can wash every day rather than once a week? Isn't it good when you can control the temperature rather than get into a freezing river? Isn't it good that you can actually lather up rather than just find, well, I'll just get wet? You see, you and I have so much to be thankful for. The Bible says, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Come on, let me give you some homework over Christmas. Come on, it's a time of thanksgiving. It's a time where we exchange gifts. We give and we receive. We're we're placing value on the people that we love and we're doing things for them to serve them. Can we just go the extra mile in our thanksgiving? Maybe you're going to write a note You know, I I did a little greeting to my church. We had 86 volunteers meeting last night who were um, having dinner together. And I just did, Aaron helped me do a little two-minute greeting to them. But this afternoon, you know, we got a 12-hour difference. This afternoon, I looked at my iPhone. I had 35 thank yous from different people on the team. 35 people who just said, Peter, we just saw your little message. We're so grateful for you. We're so looking forward to seeing you again. Thank you for who you are and all you've invested. I just thought, wow. I got to the point where by the time I'd read the 35th, I was almost in tears. Because I'm the other side of the world. You know, My family's there, my wife is there. But you know what? I look around the room, I look at you and I say, you're worth it. You're better than Jennifer Aniston. You're worth it. Do you know what I'm saying? You people are worth it. Because I look around the room and I see calling. I see destiny. I see amazing potential. And I hope you appreciate each other. To the degree that you need to. And that we don't take each other for granted. But we continually say to one another, thank you. 
Thank you for the way you serve. Thank you for the way you give. Thank you for the way you sacrifice. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for cheering me on. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. 